Jen, hi, how are you doing? Hey, I'm well, thanks. How are you going, Rich? Yeah, very good. Very good. It's nice to see you because I haven't seen you for um, a little while, except from pictures on online. I know. So living over here in the Gold Coast in Australia now. So it's been um, about a year and five months I've been here now. So wow. I escaped just before um, all of the palaver with COVID. And um, see, so yeah, I arrived here two weeks before we went into that lockdown phase. Right. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't thought about that actually. Um, yeah. So you really know. I can't remember if you've been to Australia before, but this is the first time you've lived there, right? Yeah. So I've been to Sydney a few times because I have a sister who lives there, but I'd never been to the Gold Coast. So it was um, interesting, sort of landing, um, spending one one and a half weeks on the university campus to kind of um, start my PhD over here. And then being told, right, you're going home to work from home. Yeah. Um, and it was an interesting situation to be in because I really didn't know anybody. Um, but having said that, I was okay. And I think it was a very unique situation where I almost instantly fell in love with where I was living. And I really appreciate the freedom that we did actually have during lockdown compared to you guys over in the UK because mm -hmm. I live 200 metres from a beach that stretches 20 kilometres. Um, I live next to parks, I live next to nature and there's so much I could do. You know, I could go out and freely walk around these places and um, had work to do. So whilst I did miss a lot of human connection during that time, um, I did really value that chance that I got to explore mm. you know um and almost have a time to settle without being so overwhelmed with people and things around me so yeah. um so yeah it was it was in, it, there were challenging times I won't um sort of deny that um because I am a very social and connecting person um but it, it was it was okay yeah so you said you surprised yourself then did you the fact that it was okay for you yeah, I, I was very apprehensive when it, it was a situation we've never been in before in the world. Um, nobody could have expected to be told you're now sort of having to follow these, these rules. Um, and uh, change is notoriously something which I actually have struggled with, um, with a, a previous history of uh, mental health issues, which we'll subsequently discuss uh, think in this podcast but change has always been something I struggled with so I was a little apprehensive and if I'm honest with you there were some mental health struggles which I did have um when we got a few months into the lockdown but I think the initial period was almost a honeymoon phase where I did um get to kind of just say hey this is this is this is okay mm. um I think as time went on that was when I, I did kind of experience some more negative impacts from it. Yeah. And, and do you think the negative stuff was, was down to the lack of contact with people? Yeah, I think there was a lack of contact with people, but also um, for me, it was a, whilst, whilst I know that we have very little control over a lot of things in life, um, control has notoriously been something I've, tried to maintain over lots of things in my life that have kept 
which has almost given me this full sense of security. Um, and during COVID, we had a lot of things taken out of our control. You know, we couldn't just go and do our gym workouts. We couldn't just go to the shops. We couldn't go and meet our friends. And I think um, that change of routine and not having that rigid control over what I would do, which would give me that false sense of security, almost led me to become um, very anxious in situations. And then I started developing some sort of less healthy behaviours at home, um, which weren't that supportive towards my uh, well-being, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. So, so you found some, what can we call them, quick, quick fixes to sort of feel a bit better in the short term, but, but that wasn't really in line with your otherwise, you know, pretty healthy lifestyle. Yeah, and it was more um, sort of rigid rules around timings of things, sort of timings that making um, very rigid rules around when I would have meals, what I would be cooking, when I would give myself free time rather than being able to be more spontaneous listening to what my body wanted and um, whilst I think routine and a certain to a certain extent having kind of some structure in place is really important in life and does serve us well for the majority of the time um, it's being able to rein that in when it becomes detrimental to us and to a point where we're following those rules despite possibly our body saying hey actually I'm a bit tired now maybe just give me a rest or mm, I'm not hungry at this time yet maybe have your dinner a little bit later um but I found myself very much in a position where I was ignoring any internal cues and I'd set these rules and it was it was almost um a way for me to again feel that I was in control over something and provide this kind of safety um ironically it did the opposite i i became very sad and 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 down about the whole situation and i actually did a small news piece for australia at the time because it was acknowledged that a lot of people were actually finding themselves in similar situations yeah. um i think they wanted to bring to the forefront to people do you know what it, you're it's okay you're not the only one feeling like this mm. yeah so it sounds like there was this kind of this feeling of, of lack of control because decisions were being made, well, for everyone about a lot of things we can and, and can't do. So, so you kind of increased the gain on, on things you could control and, and ignored, you know, the, the signals, the signs your body was giving you um, yeah. and, and kind of taking the controls as in like in the plane and, uh, and trying to fly it through the storm anyway. Yeah. And I I think often in those situations, often it then comes back to your kind of innate personality traits that you hold. Um, So I've notoriously um, been someone who, and again, a lot of these are great traits to have, like always striving to do the best in everything she does and a high achiever. Um, I could quotation marks say a perfectionist, and very determined, ambitious, which are fantastic qualities. And we apply these to so many areas of our life. Um, but again, it's it's using them to the best of your ability to support you. Um, so I would say having those perfectionist traits 
well, there's no problem in trying to do well in things um, and, and to make sure things are um, done to the best of your ability. But knowing that what is perfect and, and we, we don't have to, have to achieve what we consider perfect in life to, to, to be okay, to be successful. Um, and I think during that time, I kind of just, despite knowing these things, let myself lose hold of those values a little bit um, yeah. and, and get a little lost along the way, I think. Yeah, yeah. But then it, it clearly became, you know, you became aware that you were doing it again. Um, and so what, what did you do next? How, how, did you, how did you sort of overcome that, recognise it and, and, and overcome it? Um, I think I've got to get out of jail card, actually, Rich, because um, we, we were very fortunate here in Queensland that we were not in a lockdown for a very long time at all, um, two or three months before we were able to start seeing things opening back up. Um, but during that time, um, the way I would say I possibly got through that period was a lot of talking. Um, so I have a very close family connection back in the UK uh, with my parents. And a lot of speaking with my parents was something that I would do daily. So we'd have a daily call and I'd made them very aware that I'd noticed some of these behaviours which I'd had before had crept back in. So my parents and my sister in Sydney were a brilliant support during that time. Um, and when things were gradually starting to open up. One of the things that I'd uh, joined initially when I got out here but had to stop during lockdown was I'd actually joined an open water swim group, which is uh, ocean swimming. Mm. And I had this instant connection with the ocean um, where I knew that if I was feeling anxious or if I was feeling a little stressed, it was an instant healing for me. I could go and get in the ocean, get my head under the water, um, go and swim with this group that I'd joined and I'd get out and I would, I'd feel okay and I'd feel amazing. And even now, it's uh, yesterday I woke up and for what reason I felt a little bit flat, not myself. And I phoned my mum and had a chat and she's trying to perk me up. I said, don't worry. It's okay. I'm I'm going for an ocean swim. I'll I'll be absolutely fine. And an hour later, I get out of the ocean, and I was a brand new person. Like it's um it's really powerful. And I think we all find something in life that um possibly can help us. Well, a lot of us might find something that can help us in those situations. Where I know for you, Rich, it's it's running, getting out in nature, going out for a run. Um, and running used to be uh, my passion. Um. But yeah, I've, uh, so I, since moving to Australia, the, the ocean is now um, something that I feel very connected with to the point that I've said I couldn't live more than 300 metres from, from being mm -hmm. by the ocean now because <laughs> I have to be close to it. <laughs> well, but, but of course, you've, you've, haven't you chosen one of the most dangerous oceans to, um, to swim in? Hey, this is, um, yeah, uh, a topical area and um, it's, you know, it's something which when I first came out, I thought about that a lot. I used to get in the ocean and I would 
panic going out of my depth. Mm. Um, now, where I live on the Gold Coast, uh, I live in a place called Broad Beach, and we get a very big swell in the ocean, um, especially during the summer. Winter, we get some really flat and calm conditions, um, which is now. But during the summer, we'll get really big swells. So for us to be able to ocean swim, we have to go beyond the waves. And so in the summer, sometimes we'll be swimming two, 300 metres out into the ocean. Wow. Um, or we start our swim across yeah. um, you know, the ocean. So we have to get out to the flat part. So there'll be about 40 of us go out, 40, 50 of us on a Saturday. And um, previously, I'd have been, been terrified. Mm. Um but you just learn that, I don't know, um, there's always a risk. The risk is very small. And um, I feel that if I was to hold myself back because of that risk, I feel like I would be missing out on a lot of enjoyment that I've found in the ocean. And um, when we look at the statistics, where I'm at is been very few i think the last attack here was 13 years ago mm, shark, um, I mean. yeah i mean sharks so a lot of the sharks they tend to hover around um the creeks where yep. there's a river mouth um and we have fantastic systems here in place where every five or ten minutes we've got helicopters over the ocean checking to make sure and there was one time where we were told to um the jet ski approached us and said, guys, I just need to ask you to get out the ocean. We've just had a sighting about, um, and it was about in the car, 15 minutes south of us, mm -hmm. another beach, and they were swimming our way. But that actually um, was during wild season, which is what we're in now. So uh, during the winter, we get the whales migrating uh, north. Mm. And we, it's a beautiful time because we get to see every day the whales playing in the ocean. Oh, wow. And so they migrate north to have their babies. And then around October, they'll migrate south. And um, that's the time when possibly there's a couple of weeks we stay out the ocean because when they migrate back, unfortunately, some of their babies die on the way. And um, when a baby dies, that does attract in some sharks right. um so often around october we might get some increased sightings and we say okay guys for these two weeks we know we've just got to stay out the ocean and jump in the pool instead um but it's a magical time when the whales come up because mm. you just it's, uh, you just see them playing every day it's yeah. it's a game you go out to spot who can see the first whale that's amazing yeah that's amazing. it's incredible so there's that and then, because I'm thinking of how you overcome this fear, because that, you know, the thought for me of, and I'm not a good swimmer and I don't really like swimming in the sea, um, the thought of kind of going out over the waves and then getting to the other side and being that far out is, um, it's not a pleasant thought for me, let's say. Um, and I'm guessing you had some similar kinds of thoughts when you first started doing it, but you also saw there was a massive benefit. Was, was that the yeah. main way you got over the fear or, or were there other things you did as well, apart from just doing it? Yeah, so again, that's I've notoriously been someone who doesn't choose to give up on something. Um, a very, uh, I've got a quite a big sporting background growing up and um, determined and, and would never give up. I couldn't be seen to give up on something. And I remember, for, I would say the first month or two, 
I would try and get out and I just could not get out beyond these waves because it's a real technique you have to learn to duck dive under these big mm-hmm. waves you have to grab the sand so that it doesn't pull you back yeah. and uh, I'm, I'm trying and I'm swimming and and I just and I'd learned during, I was I, this was during the summer period so it was the roughest conditions and um I just couldn't get out and I'd come back in and I'd be so angry. I'd be crying. I'd be, and the coach would always say to me, oh, don't worry, we'll try again next time. We'll try again next time. And, um, and then I'd go along and sort of, I, I remember the time I got out and there was a, a guy I connected with called Andy. And I said, Andy, will you stay with me today and, and really encourage me and try and help me. And he said, yeah, yeah, of course. Cause they always would, but a lot of the time, I would get to a point where I would say, guys, I, I, I want to go in because I used to get a bit frightened. So then despite having their support around me, they'd say, yeah, that's fine. We'll take you in and then we'll go back out. But this day I kind of said, Andy, I really want you to encourage me because a lot of the time I would go in because I got myself a little panicked where I think if you had someone reminding me, no, actually you're okay. Um, I might have actually pushed through. So I said, look, stay with me and, and just give me that bit more encouragement. So we're going out and, and and I did. I got to that phase again where I thought, no, I'm scared. I, I want to go back in. And he turned and he went, are you sure? Or do you want to keep trying? And I looked and I said, okay. So, so we went again and he taught me something. He said, look, you've got to remember, you're only ever going to get 10 waves, 10 big waves in a row that you've got to duck dive before you're going to get a lull in the ocean and when you get that lull that's when you've just got to go for it yeah. as far as you can and then you might get have to deal with another and we got out and I remember that day there was about 40 of us and they're all cheering in the middle of the ocean because I finally got out and um, it's incredible Rich because now I am so confident like some people will say Jane do you want a buddy to get out no I'm fine mm. I'm fine um, and now I'm looking at the beginners who are coming, who are scared and tentative, whereas I'm happy now to just cruise out. Yeah. It's yeah. incredible how yeah. you um, how you just, that persistence and the support, the encouragement. Um, it's incredible what you can do. And, and it's sometimes really nice to actually look back and, and see how far you've come with that. Yeah, there's clear, clear progress there, isn't there? yeah yeah and so if you were sort of on your way out and you saw a beginner what, what would you say to them now I'd, I'd swim over to them and um I'd obviously first thing you do is you make sure they're okay and uh and and I've I've told them I said look I've been in your position and um you can you can jump out if you want but I would, if you're okay, I'd encourage you to stay with me and, and see if you can get out. Because once you do, you're going to have an amazing swim. Yeah. Especially when you get some good conditions because the beautiful um, sea life that you see under the ocean and the way the sand banks ripple. And it's um, it's just magical. Yeah. Wow. You're kind of tempting me a little bit now. Well, when you get out here one day, Rich, I'll take you for a swim. I'll, I'll be that beginner. now you you obviously referred to you know prior prior times prior challenges um so maybe maybe now's a good time to sort of go go to the start um kind of where things began we we met 
somewhere into you know quite a long way into your your journey to where you are now um, yeah. but, but maybe you could take us back yeah so um I've got quite an interesting story well I think it's quite interesting um and um so I think we we go all the way back to childhood really so uh, sort of growing up this really active sporty um precocious really outgoing child I think full of life and um I, I couldn't play enough sport every day mum and dad were running me here everywhere and I was a high achiever from a young age both academically and and in sport and I think from a very young age which I I learned um that I loved praise and I loved receiving commendment from others so I could call it as such I learned from a young age that I liked being validated by the external. Okay? Mm. So external validation from the world to kind of validate my worth. And I think I, I learned that from a very young age. And at a young age, it didn't seem to um, have much effect on me. Um, however, I then went to transition from a really nurturing um, country village primary school to go to an all-girls grammar competitive environment for my secondary school. And that transition um, was, was very challenging in a sense. I was suddenly immersed in an environment where there's people who might have been a bit faster at me at running or people who were scoring higher in the maths lesson. Or, and for the first time in my life, I was found in a situation where I wasn't receiving this validation that I needed um, and I didn't know how to deal with how that felt um, feeling feeling not good enough for this world feeling a little empty and it's around that time that transition through into your teenage years that we, we all become a little bit more aware of kind of diet culture which exists in society glossy magazines um, around kind of fitness and eating this diet plan and um, I think with those traits that I held this perfectionist this um, high achiever who was suddenly feeling like she wasn't good enough in that moment I made a connection that I could start controlling my food intake and I could start cutting out foods which these magazines or which society was telling me weren't good for me yeah. Um, and then I could become very obsessive around exercise because society was telling me, well, if you do more of it, it's better. Um, and so that's what I did. So I went home and I said to mum, I was 12 years old. I said, I'm cutting out chocolate and sweets. And, and mum's instant reaction was, well, you don't need to cut them out, but maybe we just don't have them every day. Mm. Um, no, no, no. If I'm doing something, I've got to do it properly. So it started that way. And after a couple of weeks, that didn't feel good enough. So then I started cutting out other foods and exercising more. Um, and my parents clocked on quickly that this, this wasn't healthy um, and I and was possibly um, not that well. So mum actually took me to the doctors when I was 12. And that was when I was first diagnosed with anorexia. Mm. at the age of 12 and um being so young I think uh you could view it two ways so young 
and, and you could say, well, that's so tragic to experience that at such a young age, but it also meant that um, my parents had a significant amount of control over me and they were able to get me into treatment at a very early stage. And um, I, I was quite reluctant at first to receive any treatment because eating disorders are very manipulative uh, illnesses. And I often describe it, I actually named um, my eating disorder, I named it Anna because I describe it was like a, a voice in my head that would sort of take control as if I was sharing, sharing my brain with, with another person. Um, and that voice would control everything, what I ate, what I did, what I said, um, the person that I was becoming. I was becoming a very, I wasn't like the gen that my family knew. Um, I was becoming quite spiteful, aggressive, um, because I didn't want anyone to interfere with those rules that I'd set. Yeah. So I was put into treatment, outpatient treatment, and um, over the next two years, um, my parents took complete control over my eating, um, the, the exercise that I was allowed to partake in. And um, so mum would, would come into school every day and she would be taking me out for lunch. And she would sit with me and making sure that I was eating my packed lunch. Um, and that's one of the rules that we had to do because initially I wasn't doing any of that. If, 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 if people didn't take control of me, I wouldn't do it. So, however, by 14, 15, I'd um, restored a, quite a, a lot of the weight that I'd lost. And, and I was doing well. And I think one of the things I really missed was my sport. It was, uh, it was my love. And I really, really missed it. So part of that was a drive to recover. Um, and around that age, um, I would say that I would consider myself as someone who still had an eating disorder, but I was in a functioning body. So I would eat, but it would still be very regimented around what I would eat. Yeah. Um, but... I appeared to be living a okay life and that I was functioning and that I was in a body that could support me. So I went back to my sport and at the time, my two, two major sports were I was um, running for Kent. So I was an endurance runner and I was playing cricket for Kent as well. And um, so I went back to my sport and I, and I was doing okay, but it was, it was always these things around at cricket when we used to have cricket tea I'd always have to have my own tea there because I wouldn't eat the food that they would provide and everyone just accepted it at the time because they, they could see that I was enjoying being back in sport and that there was a smile on my face yeah. um, and I think at the time it was well what else do we do at this, this moment do we do we pull her out or do we let her continue knowing that she is eating but so that was how it went. And, but I was never in a body rich that was healthy because one thing that I lost when I was 12 was, which I was, a, I started puberty very early and I, did, I had my first menstrual cycle at age 12. And that's the first thing that I lost. And for the rest of those years that I was during my teenage years, never came back. So um, without going too scientific, that meant that there was no estrogen running around my body. And estrogen is fundamental for um, bone health. 
Um, so during teenage years, when we lay down most of our bone density, uh, unknowingly, I was I was losing. Mm. And I was um, a runner and a cricket player doing all this sport, frequently getting injured, um, which was likely because I wasn't still probably not fueling enough for what I was doing because I would have had a cycle if I was. Um, anyway, I was, I was doing really well and it got to, with my sport, and it got to a point where I said, my parents kind of said, if you really want to progress with one of these, you're going to have to decide because it's getting beyond a joke. I was trying to fit cricket in and then going straight from cricket to running and it was just becoming too much. And I really wanted to pursue a career in sport. And um, I was possibly verging on having a little bit more chance with running because whilst I was a good cricket player, I was, I did lack a lot, a lot of strength. Um, and whereas my endurance running, I was, I was taking off quite well. So I decided that I was going to go down the path of running and um, I was doing well at school and I got um, a place to go to Brunel university to go and pursue a sports science degree, but I got a scholarship to go there to do, uh, to do my running. Yeah. and be in the sports halls and so I went there and um this was a big change leaving home leaving mm. the safety net that I'd built around me and instantly felt a little uncomfortable with some of the the, the, the changes and unfortunately I was a case a subject of bullying in the first three months at Brunel and again felt entirely out of control uh, didn't know how to manage any of the emotions I was feeling so the first thing that happened was I became very restricted with my food again yeah. because it it was that numbing of emotions it was something I could focus on the exercise um and I used to go home every weekend and mum and dad instantly clocked they knew what was happening and the university were were sort of a little unhelpful in in recognizing the situation of the bullying and it ended up after four months of uni, I was pulled out and I came home. Now that was 2018. And uh, between the years of 2018 to, um, no, sorry, Rich, I've completely lost my dates there. That was twin, that was 2012. Where I got 2018 from, I'm not sure. 2012, <laughs> because the next few years were what I can describe as a very dark existence as I just, um, fell deeper and deeper into my eating disorder um, and I became an existence um, and at this point I was past the age of 18 so I was around 19 so you're approaching that adult mark mm. parents had a lot mm. less control over me and despite their love and their constant kindness that they would always be there for me no matter how much they could advise me to go and seek help from the doctor I would refuse because I didn't want anyone intervening with this thing that I had such control over. Yeah. Um, and it got to the point where my parents and my sister actually went to the doctors and they sat in front of the doctor. They subsequently told me this um, when I recovered. Um, and they said, Jennifer is going to die if someone doesn't help her. And the doctor said, unless she comes and sees me, there is nothing I can do. 
And I got letters sent to me from the doctor asking me to come in and I would rip them up and throw them in the bin. And uh, 2015, we're now at, and mum caught me one day with that letter, throwing it in the bin. And they had to be cruel to be kind in that moment. And they quite literally, dad got me, he pinned me down in the car. Mum drove the car. They got me somehow in front of the doctor kicking and screaming. Um, age 21, it was like I was a child. And um, I was admitted from there straight away to an inpatient unit um, where I subsequently spent the next five to six months as, as an inpatient. Now, that was a specific eating disorder inpatient unit. Um, I, I was very close to, to die. Um, and the first sort of two weeks I was in complete isolation because I had a white blood cell count of 0.2. Now to put that into perspective, the lower range of healthy is four. Mm. Um, so I was very vulnerable to catching something. And because my body was so weak, if I did, it would have been pretty traumatic. And then uh, my parents were told, they were, they were told you need to be aware that Jennifer is in a critical state and unless we can get her to comply, it, it doesn't look too bright. And I had no, didn't frighten me at all at that point. I was so under the control of an eating disorder. And I think the voice of an eating disorder is that um, the, the aim is for, for the first one to die. An eating disorder's goal, if, if, you, if you treat it like it is that person, which is the only way I can comprehend it, is it's the first one to die is the winner. Um, and it's, it's terrifying now to think that when someone tells you the behaviours you are engaging in will kill you, didn't even, I didn't even blink and think, oh, goodness me, you know, life didn't even seem that precious at that time. Um, anyway, I was under 24-hour watch, so I had the nurse with me the whole time, and I remember that first day being taken in and being sat down in front of a sandwich. And that terrified me. And I sat there, I was in floods of tears, I was shaking. Um, and, and they said, you have 45 minutes and you need to eat the sandwich. And I just stared at it and stared at it. And I, I didn't know how I was, I was thinking, all that was going through my mind was how am I gonna get rid of this? How am I gonna hide it? How am I gonna, how am I gonna escape? having to eat this mm. and I knew that if I didn't eat it then they would just put a tube down my nose and feed me that way did, did they say and that they would do that if you didn't eat the sandwich yeah so it was made very clear the rules from day one as if you don't comply these are the things that happen yeah um so I sat there looking around how am I gonna is the nurse gonna look away and no the nurse is sat next to you eyes on you and so I know I, I had to I had to try and um, I, I can remember now, like it was yesterday, my whole body shaking and the tears streaming down my eyes. But I managed eventually, I managed half of it. And they, if you attempted, if you did try and you managed some of it, they wouldn't tube you straight away. They would give you a supplement drink. So they would give you the remainder of what you didn't consume in a, in a drink with yeah. the same amount of energy. 
So we managed that. And that was how it went for the first couple of weeks, two or three weeks, um, consistent battles with the staff saying, I didn't want this, I wouldn't have this. But I learned that that wasn't, I wasn't going to get away with any of it. Um, who, who, because you've sort of implied that there were sort of two, I mean, we have different versions of ourselves, don't we? And there's this, did you still, still call it Anna at this point or it was? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's, it's very... so there's Anna and then there's you, if you like. Yeah. Um, when, when they were talking then, who wasn't listening or who didn't want to listen? So Jen, so me. And, and often people with eating disorders will say that when the worse you get, the louder that eating, eating disorder voice comes. And then as you go through recovery, the quieter it becomes and the more you can kind of listen to your rational voice. You know, um, but I did go through a breakthrough um, after about three or four weeks, and uh, and I actually can't explain why or how or what happened to this day. But I remember one morning waking up and feeling a sense of I'm, I don't want this anymore. I, I want to live, and it was unique. And my my consultant was very even. She said this is this is the rare situation to find somebody and she said it happens now and again that we do get someone who suddenly realizes they want more and this and wasn't, was this wasn't a game now this wasn't like uh you absolutely wanted something different you there yeah. was a different expectation and it was a yeah it was a flip reversal because i went from that day before crying in front of the the uh, meal um and being unable to do it to waking up this day and going no I'm done with this. I am getting better. And from that, and, and it was a stark surprise because the nurses didn't trust the Jennifer that they'd seen every day. And then all of a sudden I'm coming in and they're putting a meal in front of me and I've decided, no, I'm doing this. Mm. And from that day onwards, <laughs> coming back to my perfectionist nature, my consultant said to me, when I left, you were the perfect you were the perfect patient, just <laughs> confirming that validation that I needed. Yeah. Um, so, but from that day, and I learned, Rich, that complying meant that I got reward. So I complied, and that meant that if I gained a kilo each week, I would get to see my family. I would get to go uh, to spend 20 minutes with my parents in the garden. And mm. all of a sudden, mm. you started to get these tastes of things in life that you'd missed so much. It became worth it. The importance. Now, yeah. Um, so when I did manage to weight restore and I was in a much better place and I, I came out of hospital, um, I did go through a period where I, I, I became, um, because a lot of the mental side of things hadn't been addressed, I became very obsessed again with health, quotation marks, what we see, healthy eating and, and exercise. Um, and at that point, I actually did start doing some work with um Rini McGregor who's um, a leading dietitian in the UK and she was the first person that actually helped me identify where this came from and it all came from a place of um, self-worth and the narrative and the beliefs that I have about myself and this is a lot which is misunderstood around eating disorders is fundamentally they're not about food um, they are about our beliefs our, our low self-worth, our need to validate ourselves, And we don't like the emotions that come up with that. So by a way to suppress them, we, we 
drive all our energy to this meticulous control over food or exercise. Mm. And it's only actually when we start dealing with those deep emotions that we start to progress. So where did you fit into all of this? Um, <laughs> when I was in that inpatient unit, uh, I remember the exact day I one morning woke up. I'd not fallen. I'd not done anything. I woke up with excruciating back pain and I didn't know where it come from. And uh, everyone's, have you fallen? Did you pull something? Or oh, maybe you slept funny in your bed. Oh, I've not done any of these things. And so the, the, the treatment was, oh, let's just pump her full of paracetamol, ibuprofen. And then the, the focus was they needed to restore my weight. So no one really was focused on the fact I was in pain. And uh, over a few weeks, this pain gradually started to progress. And it was in my feet, knees, back. And um, I'm thinking there's something terribly wrong with me. Um, so when I started getting some free time from the hospital, we started going to see doctors, specialists. I had MRIs done from my head to my toes, tests for arthritis, all these different tests, like nothing wrong with you. And um, it, went, it went on for a significant period of time, this pain. And um, I was becoming very depressed with it in a low state because, as you know, when people are in pain, we feel like we're suffering. We, it's not a nice experience. So um, I remember post-discharge from hospital being at home one night and it came to that desperate Google search, success stories to overcome chronic pain. And I stumbled across a story of a girl who'd, um, interestingly, she'd been a runner as well. And she mentioned that she'd started working with a pain coach named Richmond Stace in London and helped her over. And so I, I ran to dad. I said, I need to go and see this man. And, um, and I remember the first time I came to see you, it wasn't actually in London. It was in your, oh, where was your other? Um, Probably in New Malden. That was it, New Malden. So we drove up to New Malden and saw you. And um, to this day, I remember I walked in, Rich, and you said, so what do you want? And I said, I don't want to be in pain anymore. And he said, I didn't ask you what you don't want. I asked you what you want. Mm -hmm. And it was in that moment and that first session that you helped me to understand a little bit about pain that I'd never understood before. Um, and kind of the responses of the body to perceiving possibly a threat, whether that threat's real or not, and how we might about moving forwards in seeing well what's my vision what what do I want in life um what are my values and and can we start focusing more of my energy towards what it is that I want rather than driving all of my energy back onto these areas of pain and it seemed crazy to, at the time it seemed alien to me you know because as you know more than anyone the pain sort of the way pain is dealt in society doesn't match with that. Um, a lot of it's still the focus on the pain. You go to see a sort of a standard physio anyway, and often you'll say, I've got pain in my shoulder. Oh, let's, let's dig into the shoulder. Let's, what did you do to the shoulder? Whereas it was remarkable to come and see somebody who actually quite often would take the attention away from it for me and, and start focus on more meaning and purpose. Um, and so we worked together for, I think we were working together for a good couple of years and we had remarkable progress from a point of me being in pain from 
walking down the street to suddenly being back going to the gym, being able to go out on activities with my family. Um, and I would say to this day, I would still say I do find myself in situations every now and again where I experience um, what I often term possibly flare-ups mm. um, of, of pain. I, I know that I'm possibly a little more sensitised to, to it through my experience, but I don't respond in a, in a way of panic anymore. I would respond in a, in, a, in a way of, okay, well, yeah, I've possibly been quite stressed recently, actually. And I know when I get very stressed that often my body presents a bit of discomfort. But now I often ask the question, which you taught me again, all these things were written down in my toolbox. What's the next best thing? So if my little anchor is, okay, I feel pain, right? three deep breaths what's the next best action that I can take that's in line with my vision of health and happiness and that that's all I say now and if it doesn't support that then it's not in line and I really hope that just by saying this to you I hope it actually brings some some some, some lift to you in knowing that a lot of those tools that you provide me with are staying true every day you know and every day when uh, even out of the context of pain you can even translate some of those tools into other areas of your life um I've, i appreciate i'm going on a very long story here so I, i'll just bring people up to speed with where i'm at now so knowing that i've gone through this big journey of coming through an eating disorder chronic pain and felt I've got to be able to share this with the world because I felt that it was something that I wanted to almost give back um so from there I I decided that once I finished university I did my master's degree um in eating disorders and clinical nutrition and I wasn't done with with the area of research so I managed to obtain a scholarship to come over to Australia to do a PhD in the field of eating disorders in female athletes um, which is where I'm at right now, because I really want to help in that space. Um, and on the side of that, I, I do try and write um, and share my story socially um, on social media and various blog articles that I've shared with different platforms in a hope that I can help to inspire um, others who have possibly gone through similar or going through similar situations and, and they feel hopeless. They feel like they're never going to be able to have that life that they want. And I, I know how that felt because I couldn't see a way out, but it's, I still have to take a moment every now and again to just stop and go, wow. Like I, I was laying on a bed, told you were going to die. And now six years later, I'm doing a PhD in the area of eating disorders and I'm now trying to help others know that if they're on their back, they too can get to where I'm at. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a remarkable story and within that are many remarkable elements. Um, and, and one thing that strikes me is just the, the fact that you've, you're, you're examining your own experience um you know scientifically and and much beyond that as well 
in in your studies and there, there is an argument that you know as you've clearly stated and, and through your own experience you know a, a higher belief drives you know these behaviors a belief about yourself about the world and it's driving that those very strong um behaviors and and one of the ways that perhaps we we disrupt that is by turning our own attention on it as as you have done and i remember when we were working together you know you you were studying then and working hard um and um going to your lectures and you were you were teaching classes and, and all sorts of things so you you know you're keeping yourself well occupied but nonetheless you you were examining your experience did, did you recognize that you were doing that was that a conscious decision to, in a way to move on or did it just kind of happen i actually think it did just kind of happen i don't think um because sometimes even I, I remember getting a little frustrated during my master's degree actually when i was in some of the lectures because I often found myself in a situation where someone was delivering me a, a lecture on eating disorders who'd never had a lived experience. And there were some things which would crop up and I'd be sat there and I'd be thinking, no, that's not, that's not right. It might say it on a bit of paper, mm. but in the area of eating disorders, I think research to a point, it, it is very valuable but I think there's nothing more valuable in that space than the lived experience because yeah. it's, it's such a complex area. Um, so I often used to find myself a little bogged down in actually when I was working in that space, I sometimes had to almost um, put a barrier up between my, my, my experience and what I was working with um, because some of it wouldn't sit too well with me. Um, I think my exploration of my own sort of experience and um, reviewing my own accounts is, is more about myself now being in this place of final stages of recovery because 18 years worth of an eating disorder is something that will go on for. But healing will take a long time and and um, I'm still not fully there. I'm, I'm a long way, but I'm still not 100% recovered. And I think it's now where the hard parts come because you really try to understand and unpick some of these deep-rooted issues. Because we've dealt with all the superficial, you know, we, we've dealt with all the, the physical side of things. But it's... The true healing takes place when you get to those real deep roots. And so for me, that's now where this self-inquiry comes because I need, I want to understand a lot more about my narrative about myself, my perceptions that I have about myself, because I've never given myself a chance to actually explore those. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've got to be ready for it, haven't you? You've got to have that that strength to and and be able to deal. Because I'm, you know, if you're examining it, it's inevitable that uncomfortable feelings, familiar voices, perhaps come up, and yeah. you've got to be able to sit back from that and kind of go, well, no, I'm here, and that's that, and and have that distance. How how do you do that practically? And I think that's possibly been one of the barriers that I've struggled with these final stages. Is I'm very good at distracting myself from sitting with those uncomfortable emotions 
And the problem there is, is it's praised by society. Jen, you're amazing. You're always doing all these things. You're swimming, you're playing volleyball, you're doing all this work. And you get praised so much. And it's great. Yeah, it's great to be involved in these things. But a lot of the time, I won't stop because I know when I stop is to sit and to sit with uncomfortable emotions that possibly need to be addressed for me to move forward. And that's when you say mm -hmm. you've got to be ready for it. Am I ready for it? I don't know. Will I ever? I don't know. When is the time? When do you decide you're going to be ready for it? A lot of the time, I feel I'm very... I say, oh, I've not got time because I've got to get this work done. I've got a PhD I've got to get done. I've not got time to sit with that. But actually, that's when I think it's most important. Yeah. You know, we've all got time. We've all got time to work on ourselves. Because if I work on myself, I know that I will be able to be a better version of myself, to be able to do all these things better. Yeah. But it's listening to that value. It's listening to that intelligent voice that has just said that and actually taking action on it. Now, human, be human behavior is fascinating because we can tell ourselves all these things and we know all these things, but what makes us follow through with them? And I'm, I'm increasingly becoming interested in human behavior actually, because I see it in myself a lot. You know, I, I can tell myself all these things and I know all these things, but what stops me from acting on them? And that's a question I'm still asking myself. So I can't answer that one for you right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's always work in progress, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and I think, you know, you, you've moved yourself to a position where you recognize that, you know, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in, in life and life's messy and chaotic and complex. Uh, the human mind is, is that as well um and and that's a huge you know step forward to be able to just sit here rationally and and, and talk about that um but then yes there's there's the inner world which you know even when we're on a beach or or wherever there's still that um and and building that kind of resilience and and having a way of toggling our actions, behaviours, thoughts, and how they all come together, so that we're keeping in line with predicting something better and better and better in the in the future. And it's and you've yeah. found and you've got a bunch of ingredients. I mean, you mentioned you kindly mentioned you know some of those tools that, that we went through, and it's brilliant to to hear that. Um, um, but but others as well. You know, you've learned from from other people. Um, you know, different things, and you've uh, and you develop your skills. So. What, how do you sort of see the future? I mean, what, what's, what's the ideal for you with, with your work? Where, where do you want to take it? This is a good question, Rich. And I actually think it's one that I'm still trying to explore myself. Um, and I think a lot of people possibly find themselves in this situation because there is a lot of pressure, I think, these days to know your exact purpose. Um, and... I had a thought the other day and it was a little panic because I, I was sat on the beach and I thought, you know what, I'm not actually still 100% sure what it is I want to do. And I thought, is that okay? Because I've got all these podcasts and books saying you've got to go, you've got to be hungry, you've got to be 
focused on your purpose and to be successful. And I suddenly thought, I'm not 100% sure what it is I want, but I know I've got some key areas that I'm very interested in. And so maybe that's okay if I drive myself towards those areas and it's okay that I haven't got one specific role that I'm pinning everything on. So where do I see? I'm heavily involved at the moment with Swimming Australia. So um, I, my final PhD study is actually, I'm going to be doing a big intervention, funny enough, on behaviour change. <laughs> so I'm going to be going in to work with uh, the coaches at Swimming Australia, and we're going to create um, an educational intervention to try to help increase the knowledge and change the language and the behaviours that coaches are using around developing swimmers. Mm. Um, now it's very topical here in Australia at the moment because literally in the past two weeks Swimming Australia have been in the firing line um, for, for this exact problem right. um, and it's just coincidental that I've been planning this study um, to work with them so they're taking me on for the next year and a half which will almost be a bit like an intern really um, because I'll be creating these educational resources. I'll be going in, working with the coaches. It's, we're going to try and do it very interactively, workshops, one-on-one, um, so that we can actually work with them and give them a bit more ownership over their coaching. Um, and then we'll do a follow-up to see whether we have much impact. Now, what could that lead to? That could possibly lead to, who knows, a door opening in that space for me in Australia. Um I'm also very passionate about giving back to the eating disorder community. So possibly there may be in the future roles for me with eating disorder recovery coaching um, with those who may need it. Mm. I have a little side hustle. I love to teach yoga. And so that's a little side hustle I do. And I love to write. And I haven't mentioned this yet, but I have um, just written my book, actually. Um, so that was something I did during COVID. Um, I wrote my story and it's actually called Goodbye Anna. Um, and it's with an editor at the moment and the cover's designed. And so I, I hope to release that at some point this year. And wow. um, I found a bit of a passion in writing. So I've got some areas which I'm very passionate about and I've got lots of doors that I could open. And I like, quite like that situation right now. As whilst there's the unknown of, I don't know where I'm going to go. There's also the known that, well, I've got a lot of doors that I could possibly open. I'm creating lots of good contacts here. I'm creating a network involved in the academic world as well. Um, I don't see myself sat in an office as an academic Um, I see myself very much more being that practical researcher, being out and about, speaking with people. I really like that that kind of research, speaking, getting insights, lived experiences. So I'm sure I'll remain in this um, sector, but how my role will actually look is um, hopefully one that I can venture to with excitement rather than fear of uncertainty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that if, if I can say that, that you know, you absolutely epitomize the, the name of this, this podcast. So, you know, whatever you do, um, and it sounds like there's going to be a fairly big element of, of coaching in there, 
Um, it's about being a positive encourager for, for other people. Um, yeah. And, and very much fueled by your, your own experiences. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I almost find it quite therapeutic myself to share, you know, to share with others, to, to help others and to know that it helps others like, indirectly. That just fulfills me. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've definitely done that and it's fantastic. And I'm so thankful um, for you, for, you know, for sharing this on. on no, it's been um, it's been fantastic. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity. And, and it's been great to catch up with, with you again, Rich, because I'm yeah. following all your work every day. I see, see your posts and um, following along with the podcast. And it's fantastic to stay connected and, um, and follow each other's journeys as we go absolutely absolutely so where where can people find you so i'm mostly um mostly active on instagram and um my actual insta profile is jens as in j-e-n-s underscore little world um so it's just where i share a lot of my writings um my journey on recovery and a lot of it is is my day-to-day living and I think I do that to show, to inspire, you know, to show that, yeah, I was once in this space, but look, we can, we can enjoy life. A lot of it encompasses a lot of nature. I love being outside. I think it's very healing. And um, it's nice for people to see that as well. Um, so I share a lot on there. And, um, and a lot of that goes onto my Facebook as well, which I'm just checking my handle because I always forget it. But it's Jen Helen <laughs> Hamer. And Hamer is spelled H-A-M-E-R. So they're my two, um, yeah, two active socials. Brilliant. Oh, well, I'll put them on the on the page anyway. Um, and then obviously when when your book comes out, which that would be awesome, then um, let me know and then we can, I will, yeah, we can share definitely. that as, as well. Um, and yeah, people should definitely check out your uh, your posts on Instagram. And I know you, you share you know, range of pictures from now and from the past, actually, so people can see, yeah. you know, where you've come um, and, and how far you've come. Um, so that's that's fantastic to yeah. do that. Oh, it's been brilliant to catch up. Thanks so awesome. much. No, it's been great. Thanks so much, Rich. And um, yeah, keep keep in touch. Yeah, likewise. Take care. Chat soon. Bye.